by nature are sharks aggressive? No, they're not. They're not. <laughs> so this is mushrooms growing out of a wasp. I mean, we're just, we're exposed to literally thousands of synthetic chemicals just in our everyday life. My family is normal. I just think, oh, every family is just three people. So if we put hair inside bricks, it will be like insulating your home. Hi, I'm Miles Herbert. This is Think Sustainability, where we look at practical solutions for a better planet. You may have heard my voice last week and wondered why regular producer Jake Morcom wasn't coming out of your radio. Don't worry, he is taking some much-needed time off, and I'm filling in for him in the meantime. Jake will be back in your earbuds soon. Today on the show, we have a look at the carbon footprint of meat consumption and whether or not the amount of meat you are consuming is aiding climate change. By reducing our meat consumption, in particular our red meat consumption, we are doing something incredibly positive for the planet. And we have to eat less and mostly plants. But first, algae. You might already be eating the green sea plant when you grab a sushi roll. But what else can this underwater organism be used for? I had a chat with Dr. Janice McCauley, research fellow in the climate change cluster at the University of Technology, Sydney, about how algae can be used for everything from food to surfboards. My name is Janice McCauley. I'm working with the C3 climate change cluster and um, I'm working with the Algal Biosystems Biotechnology Group, but I'm focusing on algal bioproducts. So we're looking at what we can do with the compounds that are in algae to give us products that consumers can buy and utilise. So algae, what, what is it? Like, I, I feel like I don't interact with algae every single day. You know, as I walk down the street, I'm not interacting with algae. And I haven't been to the beach in a while. So what is algae? Well, algae, I think people um, will most recognise that as being the seaweed that's on the, on the beach. That's the big brown kelpie, oh, the green seaweed that you see on the rock pools. But algae can be microalgae or macroalgae. So um, a microalgae is a single cell organism so you can look under a microscope and just see single cells whereas a macroalgae is our seaweed so they're those big structures that you see they're the ones that you're collecting that'll float that on the accumulating on the beach do you work predominantly with the macroalgae or the microalgae um i did my phd with macroalgae so i worked with a green seaweed which is ulva people may know this as sea lettuce some fishermen will even utilise it as their bait for fish, as green weed. So that's the green seaweed that you can see as like filamentous, so they're long and stringy, or it could be that lettuce structure. Um, so I used, for my PhD, worked on that. I looked at the omega-3 content, pigments, and um, health-benefiting activities that compounds and molecules that are in it that may have that we could benefit our health in terms of a supplement, nutraceutical or drug. So at the moment, at C3, I'm working with microalgae. So a little bit different, but still the same concept. So we want to look at the chemistry, what's in it, what can we do with it, and what can we make. Don't we already eat seaweed, like in sushi? Yes, yes. So your sushi rolls are wrapped in seaweed, just like a vegetable, very nutritious seaweed vegetable, and we should incorporate more in our diet, I think. <laughs> and do you like the taste? Um, I do, actually, yeah. yes. So that's like the macro stuff, but you're now working with the micro stuff, yes. right? So what kind of products and cool things have you found in at, on the micro level? Well, in terms of products, we've got the key building blocks. We've got proteins, 
lipids and carbohydrates. And lipids are like fat? Lipids are fat. They're our, um, our fat molecules. And in those lipids, that's where we've got our omega-3s. And so algae are at their primary producers. So they're at the bottom of our food chain. So our fish are eating the algae and they're producing, they're accumulating all those beneficial omega-3 acids that you're heavily promoted that you eat to decrease your risk of heart disease. So they're getting that from your algae. So they have omega-3, they've got the DHA and EPA, um, they've got protein, which means they've got amino acids because amino acids make up proteins. So they've got all the essential amino acids that you need for nutrition. So the reason fish is so good for you is because... They, they eat algae. Because they yes. eat algae. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, yep. Wow. Um, and again, the polysaccharides, we can do um, well, lots of things with that. They can be texturization agents for our food to make give them nice textures, gelling, gel forming, um, to give it that nice smooth consistency. So like gelatin and jellies and like gummy bears and stuff? Yeah, exactly. What's the most bizarre, out of the ordinary thing that you can use um, algae for? The most bizarre, yeah, like out the- of the ordinary that we can use algae for. In terms of food, you've got all the essential nutrition. So you've got important fatty acids that you need to consume, your amino acids, it's got sugars, um, it's got vitamins, minerals, nutrients. So it's got that broad suite of chemicals. But um, I suppose in terms of more novel applications, we can make plastic from them. Mm. So what we can do is that fatty acid molecules or even the proteins and peptides, and we can isolate those fractions and then we can do some further modification to give us some basic building blocks that are going to create our polyurethanes. So that's our insulation for buildings, materials, our mattresses, so it's the foam. So we can actually get a a plastic from our algae by utilising those basic building blocks, doing a little bit more chemistry on them and creating that plastic. And we've already got an algae surfboard made from polyurethane based from an algae-based product. That's amazing. Yeah, I think I read a couple of weeks ago that Legos were going to try and move away from petroleum-based plastics in their products. Yep. Do you think that Legos could be made out of algae? They could be, yes, absolutely. We have about 6,000 products that are derived from petroleum. Because we've got the basic building blocks, we can get a lot of those products just from algae biomass. So what we're doing is just going to a non-renewable source to a renewable biomass source. Are they as durable? Uh, you know, Legos and surfboards, if those were made from algae, are yep. they as durable and will they last as long as petroleum-based products? It really depends on the starting material that they're trying to get the, the building block for to make their plastic or foam. And it depends on the process that you do. But you can cater if you take the amino acid and you can it, and do a certain reaction, you can actually create quite a rigid foam. And it has a really high compatibility for mixing with other commercial building blocks to get that plastic. So there's definitely a lot of options. We can manipulate those properties quite easily. You can definitely control the rigidity. So this surfboard they're promoting is having a little bit more flexibility to the standard surfboard. But actually surfers are saying, well, that's not such a bad thing. That was Dr. Janice McCauley, research fellow at the University of Technology, Sydney. You're listening to Think Sustainability on 2SER 107.3. I'm Miles Herbert. Whether or not you eat meat or just how much meat you eat, 
the conversations around meat consumption tend to exist around the welfare and rights of animals. You definitely have a vegan or a vegetarian friend who won't stop talking to you about their diets every time you have lunch. But you might not have heard just how bad that steak or burger you're eating for dinner is for the environment. I spoke with Judy Friedlander, research assistant at the Institute for Sustainable Futures from the University of Technology, Sydney, about how meat consumption and climate change are linked. We have to really unpack and separate the issues because there are a number of issues involved with meat production and consumption. And of course, people who talk about animal welfare and animal rights will say no meat at all which is, of course, fair enough. Um, if you're talking about meat reduction, that's not necessarily as big an issue. If you're talking about health, that's another issue. If you're talking about environment, it's another issue. They're all connected to meat production and consumption. In terms of the environment, meat production has an impact on not just greenhouse gases and climate change, but also water use, things like use of phosphorus, which is a finite resource, uh, concepts like biodiversity, and land degradation. Everybody thinks about climate change. They think about enteric gases or fluffs or whatever that come from cows' supposed backsides. In actual fact, that's a bit of a furphy. They burp. But cows and other ruminant animals basically create a lot of methane. And methane is a greenhouse gas and it's stronger and more powerful than carbon dioxide. And that methane gas adds to the warming of the planet? It does. So there was a study that came out from the UN in the 2000s, and it basically said that livestock were responsible for 18% of all greenhouse global greenhouse gases. So in Australia, the number isn't as high. So it depends. It's not exactly 100% sure, but it's around 10%, which is still substantial. What about the industrial side of it? Besides producing methane, does the transportation and the commercial side of the meat industry play into climate change? So there are some studies that actually put that 80% figure as very low. And once you start factoring in all those other aspects, then yes, it can be even higher. So, of course, people like to debate all those Figures and that respect it becomes contentious, but I think it's important to know that if you put it in perspective, they say that uh, livestock production basically is similar to all transportation, so it's still very substantial. And bovine animals like cows, that are traditionally a part of the meat industry, they use a lot of water, don't they? In terms of water consumption and how much uh, livestock actually consumes in the process of the production. Uh, again, it's quite contentious in terms of it depends how the cows are being raised or the sheep or whatever. Suffice to say that it's still substantial. And what I suppose a lot of researchers like to say is if you compare, um, say, animal protein to non-animal protein, then non-animal protein is going to consume far less water. And I think that's something to be really aware of is to continually compare livestock as in ruminant animals, which consists of cows and sheep, to non-ruminant animals and also non-animal proteins. I think it's fair to say that climate change is getting worse and probably will continue to get worse. So a lot of places around the world have less water? Well, I think a really key thing to think about is that the population of the world is increasing. So, for example, people in India and China, they want to eat what people in Australia and America and Europe 
want to eat in many ways due to cultural influences and other things that we probably could discuss as well as to why people eat meat. But because of that, the consumption of meat is increasing in countries like India and China. And so we have to think about population and how it's increasing and what's happening in these other countries and the projections of eating meat as well. So meat consumption or maybe just the amount of meat we eat is a Western concept? So I think if you look back over, say, a few generations, we realised that the way that people eat today or the way perhaps our parents ate is very different to how their parents and their grandparents ate. So meat used to be very special. It was something that people perhaps ate a few times a week. If you think about animals and how they're raised, even the, the biblical sense of, for example, the sacrificial lamb, that's what it was. It was a sacrifice. It was regarded as something that was special. So people have grown used to eating a lot of meat, more so than perhaps ever before. So um, again, what is it associated with? People associate it with religious, cultural, health, all those things. I think we have to again unpack all those and realize that for many people it's too much of a good thing. So we're just eating, we're eating too much meat. We are still eating too much meat. So I mentioned earlier that people in developing countries are eating more red meat. There has been a really terrific study, it was produced by The Lancet, and they said that in order for equity, if there's such a, a concept of equity and red meat, but in order for equity, then people in developing countries basically should be allowed to eat more, and people in developed countries should be therefore eating less. And they call that contraction and convergence. So if you then look at what they recommend as to what people here, for example, should be eating, men are eating probably at least double the amount that they should be. If you really start thinking about how meat is consumed, it's now practically in everything. I often think, you know, when I'm served a meal, how often pork might be part of a dish or it some seemingly can never just be a regular sandwich. It has to have meat inside it. So people aren't just eating meat at night time. They're eating meat for breakfast. They're eating meat for lunch, etc. I think, you know, clearly the government cares a bit about climate change. You have private organizations, not-for-profit groups. You know, there is a, a, a bit of a, a groundswell around helping the earth deal with, with climate change. But we rarely think about, you know, we really think about meat as part of that. Why is that? Why don't we think about what we're eating? Yeah, why, why, why is there a disassociation between, you know, we think about cars, right? We think about greenhouse gas emissions through our automobiles. We think about plastics. We think about all these things, but I think rarely do we think about the bacon we eat for breakfast as being what you called an environmental burden. I think there's a number of possible explanations. Firstly, I think that people have a real problem dealing with the environment as an issue. I think that my own personal theory, well, my theory born of research, is that when people read about bad news or difficult subjects or topics in newspapers, and they do, there's a certain distance. There's, they call it the emotional distance. But when it comes to the environment, quite often it's so overwhelming because people think, oh, my God, it's part of where I am now. I can't cope. And so, therefore, that creates all those things like denial, etc., I think that also spreads over to how people think of environmental issues with food. They'd rather not think about it. 
they'd rather negate it as an issue. But the positive thing is, is that people can actually do something about it every day because if you actually eat less red meat, you are helping the environment. A lot of the meat reduction campaigns, I think, basically tacitly acknowledge that the environmental frame or message is difficult and they'll often then focus on the health message or the animal welfare message. But for whatever reason, it really makes sense to eat less meat and less red meat in particular to help the environment. In terms of also why we don't read about it as much, so newspapers and traditional news media are very much influenced by political and economic influences. So you know, it's a commercial exercise. You have very powerful lobby groups who are constantly presenting their message. So if you think of news as reflecting public relations, which basically means commercial, industrial, whatever, that might partly explain it. So our newspapers and our politicians are run by big meat? Uh, there's no doubt that uh, livestock production and consumption in Australia plays a really big role in our industry, in our commerce, in our culture. A lot of people have a vested interest in that. It's a very difficult to extricate. I guess pointing the finger of blame doesn't really help. It's really a matter of trying to understand where people are coming from and explaining that, number one, their health is going to benefit, the environment's going to benefit, we can move to other industries that can assist as well. It doesn't have to just rely on meat. So I think when you say everyone should be eating less meat or we should be eating less meat for the environment's sake, meat eaters, they hear that and they get really defensive really quickly. And they say, no, you know, I'll never be a vegetarian. I'll never be a vegan. Does everyone have to be a vegetarian to, to help out? Absolutely not. So I was actually going to refer to a study that was done only 2016. And what they did was they looked at business as usual or diet as usual, and they projected towards 2050. And they basically found that if we actually adhered um, to health guidelines, then which means eating a bit less red meat, it means that we could actually avoid 5 million premature deaths by 2050. So it doesn't have to be all or nothing. It doesn't have to be, if we're talking about environmental issues, it doesn't have to be avoidance. It can be reduction. And there's lots of great ways of doing that. I think campaigns such as Meat Free Mondays and Meat Free Week really basically take on that notion that by reducing our meat consumption, in particular our red meat consumption, we are doing something incredibly positive for the planet. And Michael Pollan actually says that we have to eat less and mostly plants, and that's essentially summing it up. What about you? Have you ever uh, been a part of a meat consumption campaign in your personal life? The interesting thing is, is that in my family, we've been doing meat-free Mondays for probably about five years now, and I actually have kids who like meat, which is really funny, and I guess they rebel against their mother. Mm. Um, but what happens is that once people start implementing something on a Monday, and the research actually finds proves this, it becomes habitual, and then, of course, you've got a vested interest in trying to make it nicer and yummier and more interesting, and then your whole... Um, cooking repertoire changes 
And what I think is interesting too is that there's a lot of really uh, well-known trendy chefs now like Ottolenghi who are embracing plant-based foods. Mm. And I went to London uh, fairly recently and Ottolenghi's restaurant is one of the go-to restaurants. And basically he celebrates plant proteins and plant foods. Mm. Have you been to Gigi's in Newtown? No, I haven't. Yeah, it's like the best pizza place in Sydney, and it's all plant-based as well. It's okay. really good. Yeah, it's really good. And they have a really good vegan tiramisu. You've got you to gotta try. It's really, really good. It's on my list. That was Judy Friedlander from the University of Technology, Sydney, ending that story. Would you take medical advice from a celebrity chef? What is multi-drug resistance? What does your gut say about your mental health? Where did the anti-vaccination movement come from? Think Health, the show on 2SER where we look at the biggest health concerns of today, decrypt all that medical jargon, and talk to the people who are trying to solve these problems. Think Health airs Sunday mornings at 10am and again on Monday nights at 6.30. We're also a podcast. Search Think Health and subscribe today. In the light of recent allegations about water theft on the Murray-Darling Basin, Producer Leah Tomaglu spoke to Ross Thompson, Chair of Water Science and Director of the Institute for Applied Ecology at the University of Canberra, about whether the plan for the Murray-Darling Basin is actually working. What is the Murray-Darling Basin Plan and why was it developed? The Murray-Darling Basin Plan was developed really um, in the early part of the 2000s. The first discussion um, started around it. Um, there'd been a series of attempts for the states to get together to manage the water of the Murray, uh, including capping the amount of water that was allowed to be taken by irrigators. Despite that, the river was still seen to be in really poor condition. Um, and the drought that we experienced in the early part of the 21st century really, really made that considerably worse. So the plan was a unified attempt by the Commonwealth Government to create a set of rules around water um, that would apply to all of the states. And who does the Murray-Darling Basin provide water to? So the Murray-Darling Basin is Australia's largest river basin. Um, it starts flowing up in Queensland, uh, up around uh, sort of the border of the New South Wales-Queensland border, down through the Darling River, um, all the way down to Adelaide. So it's a million square kilometres of Australia. Um, and it um, provides water for more than a million people, uh, and it's about 40% of Australia's agricultural production. So it's providing food and water for a huge number of people. Who owns the water in the Murray-Darling? By the terms of our constitution, water is owned by the states and territories. <laughs> and what was, uh, with, with this recent Four Corners episode, what did it uncover in relation to that? The reality was in order to ensure that um, sufficient water was left in the river when it left New South Wales, for instance, and went into Victoria or into South Australia, um, they said let's we have to limit the amount of water that can be taken and we have to ensure that no one, no individual is taking more water than they have a right to. Um, the responsibility for ensuring that water isn't taken um, without a water licence is the individual states. And what the Four Corners episode is alleging is that there was uh, a lack of compliance and also potentially that some individuals were tampering with their water meters um, so that they didn't reflect the true amount of water being taken. 
So who are these like uh, alleged illegal pumpers and, and why were they stealing water? Well, the allegation is that it, it was a series of large cotton farming enterprises. Water is the, the single factor that allows cotton farming to be uh, economic. And so cotton is grown by a, uh, a technique where they basically flood large areas for a large period of time. And so it requires large amounts of water. And so the potential benefits for someone who was to take water without effectively having to pay for it is that they could make large profits from cotton and reduce the main cost, which would be purchasing water. So how does the water market work and why were some of these people taking advantage of it? Yeah, so the water market is set up so that if you have people who are, who are planting annual crops, so crops like wheat or cotton, um, where you don't have to plant every year, you can choose not to plant, um, then in those years what you can do is trade your water to other farmers. And in particular, the farmers that really have to have water every year are the horticulturalists, so the people who need to keep their fruit trees alive or their grapevines alive, they have to water regardless of how dry the year is. So in very dry years, um, water becomes very valuable. The price goes up on the water market. And so if you hold a large amount of water, um, but you don't necessarily have to plant a crop, then it can become more economic for you to trade your water um, than to plant your crop. And the market is, was always set up for that to happen, and it, it, it happens pretty effectively. Um, the real issue is if you didn't pay for the water in the first place and then you're trading it, um, then that's a, a real problem. So what does this sort of illegal pumping then mean for the public? Is it, is it bad for us? I think it really is. And I mean, last year in particular, we saw Broken Hill, which is downstream from some of these alleged uh, illegal water pumping. Um, Broken Hill Township... Uh, essentially ran out of water. And so there's issues with water in the um, uh, for use in, of townships for water supplies. But there's also issues uh, that you know, society has made a decision that it wants to uh, keep some water back in order to maintain healthy ecosystems so that people can go fishing and go, you know, water skiing on the river and all those sort of things. And so if uh, individuals are essentially not operating in good faith, um, then they're really not meeting their obligations that they have to society. Uh, and that means that there won't be water for recreational activities or the environment downstream. Well, yeah, would you be able to uh, explain what was happening upstream versus downstream? Well, the issue that we have in the Murray is that if upstream users are, have obviously had first access to the water, so if they don't leave enough water in the river, um, then the downstream users are the people who suffer. Uh, and the traditional problem we had before the Murray-Darling Basin Plan was that so little water was being left in the river by upstream users that not sufficient water was reaching the coast near Adelaide, and that had all sorts of implications. Um, for instance, salt water started to be able to force its way up the river because there wasn't enough fresh water coming down the river, and that was endangering Adelaide's water supply. So really the Murray-Darling Basin Plan is about ensuring that those that are upstream don't take more than their share of water and leave in sufficient amounts for those that are downstream. So what do you think will happen now? I, I think it, it's a really critical issue and I think the degree of um, cross-party support we saw yesterday, mm. um, you know, we had a, an extremely unusual collection of people from parts of <laughs> politics standing up and saying on behalf of South Australia that, that this was a really critical issue. So I think we are seeing cross-party support 
to resolve this and to ensure that what has been a very expensive $13 billion to date um, program of reform um, isn't um, sabotaged at this point um, by a few individuals uh, who aren't behaving well. In your opinion, does the Murray-Darling Basin Plan work? Do you think it needs to be like eradicated and something new put in, or does it need to be amended? What do you think? I think we've come too far um, down the path of, of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan to really look at another option. The challenge is that if we don't get the basics right, the compliance on the ground, then nothing else works. So I think what we need to see here is um, prosecutions if people have been taking water without licences, mm. but also uh, an increasing amount of rigour in terms of looking at how states are treating compliance. That was Ross Thompson, Chair of Water Science and Director of the Institute for Applied Ecology at the University of Canberra. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you like what you heard, make sure to subscribe to Think Sustainability on your favorite podcast app. Just search for Think Sustainability. We're also available on iTunes. Think Sustainability is a collaboration between the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER Radio. I'm Miles Herbert. I'll catch you guys again next week.